This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today on this episode, I have another one of our HITS instructors. Today I have Scott Clappenback. Scott's going to be teaching a class for us in Chicago here in about a couple of weeks. And he's taught for us several times over the years. And Scott has, a, a, I think, a very unique background with uh, how he ended up where he is. So uh, without further ado, I'll introduce you to Scott. How are you doing today, Scott? Great. Thanks, Jeff. So um, instead of me trying to, to piecemeal it together, can you... Tell the listeners, you know, um, some of your background, because like I said, it's you have, a, you have a much different background as far as training animals than uh, pretty much anybody I know. Okay, uh, sh- sure will. Um, first of all, I've been a deputy sheriff for Orange County Sheriff's Department in California, and that's situated right between Los Angeles and San Diego County, uh, right where Disneyland is located. That's Orange County area. I am what's called in California designated level one reserve, which gives me full 24 hour powers um, and uh, work by myself. I used to work uh, shifts in cities and stuff, and now I'm working a highway interdiction assignment that I've been working for about the last 10 years um, with my dogs. I've been a handler in our department for over 18 years. I've uh, had two dogs, I still have one. they're both Belgian Malinois. And what's unique about my avocation and vocation, they overlap. Uh, law enforcement is my avocation and for the department and working highway interdiction, me along with two other partners, I work about 1,500 hours a year for the department. And I've been doing that for well, well over 10 years. Wow. Um, but my vocation, what I do, uh, for my full-time job is I work under contract for the United States Navy's Marine Mammal Program. And the similarities between how animals are used by the Department of Defense and law enforcement are almost analogous. They're so similar. Um, we have enlisted handlers that we put through a six-week class just like many handlers go through a six-week class to get certified with their animal. Now, I've been in the animal training profession for about 37 years now. I started out learning how to train animals at SeaWorld, where I was a supervisor in their animal training department. Over my tenure there, I had worked all the major show areas, Shamu, dolphins, and sea lions. Um, while I was still doing my law enforcement stuff. In my early years in the department, I was just a patrol deputy. Uh Um, And about 18 years ago, the department said, hey, you want to come run a dog in the field? And I was the first uh, reserve that was able to, asked to run a dog in the the department. So I felt really lucky about that. Um, But getting back to my vocation, The U.S. Navy uses mainly dolphins and sea lions 
very similar to what we use dogs for in law enforcement, primarily as a locating tool, capitalizing on their unique biological capabilities. It's law enforcement, it's the dog's tremendous sense of smell and their acute hearing, right? It's a biological sensor. We don't have a piece of equipment that's as good as a dog's nose. Same thing with a dolphin. Dolphins have something called echolocation, a biological sonar. They're able to see and discriminate things that underwater sonar has a hard time doing. So we capitalize on their biological sense to go out and find things such as mines or Mm -hmm. buried mines or interdict a terrorist threat. Uh Um, I have staff in two remote locations, large Navy bases that are part of an integrated security force that work 24-7 with the animals, sort of like on watch, walking the perimeter. We use sea lions for their unique biological capabilities of extremely uh, unbelievable eyesight, almost in zero lux, almost in total darkness. They can see and find objects. They also have something, for anybody that's a diver and has ever been underwater, when you hear a sound, it's directional. It sounds like it's coming from all around you. Uh-huh. Sea lions have the unique capability of directional underwater hearing. Huh. So they can hear things and say, oh, it's behind me. Oh, it's to my left or right. Mm-hmm. So we capitalize on those unique biological senses like we do with the dogs and train them to go out and find things. Um, these animals can go in depths of excess of a thousand feet to go uh-huh. find things and recover things for the for the Navy. And what's, what's intriguing to me and really has gotten me all involved in trying to branch out and um, cross-pollinate between the Navy's working animal community and law enforcement community is we all do the same thing. Sure. We apply the same basic principles of how animals learn. The difference between the dolphins and sea lions and dogs, of course, are dogs are domesticated and marine mammals aren't. Sure. So um, our training process, and it's very intense, and sometimes it takes about a couple of years to get an animal certified, but we work under uh, the obligation of being able to be anywhere in the world within 72 hours, deployable and working. So there's a lot of training that goes into it sure. to get the animals to go. And all our animals work untethered open water. Uh-huh. So it'd be like you going, doing a huge area search. Hey, we do that. We take our dogs off lead and have them yeah. do big area searches. But we have to be so confident in our training that the animals, when we ask them to, they load on the boats. Yeah. We work off 25 to 30 foot boats, can go five, 10 miles out at sea or deploy off the stern gate of a Navy ship in the middle, anywhere in the world, uh-huh. and go to work. And then when they're done working, come back, jump in the boat, and come home. Wow. Um, so it takes a lot of trust and a lot of conditioning to get the animals to do that. But law enforcement dogs do the same thing. I've seen some phenomenal dogs Yeah. that can do a lot of things. But the take-home message that I try to get across or I try to share with the class a little bit is that how we train the animals for the Navy is very similar, the same model of learning as far as behavior modification as we do with the dogs. Uh-huh. We teach them to locate things, capitalize on their unique senses, but then we teach them to discriminate. 
you know, be it a drug dog, yeah. to discriminate that it only um, indicates to those target odors yeah. or in an apprehension scenario, just the odor of the human, you know, yeah. Yeah. a bloodhound, a tracking dog. Hey, that's a match to sample paradigm. Yeah. So it's really intriguing. And what I've, <laughs> I know I'm long winded here. No, but no it's, it's fascinating. Sort, sort of my passion. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one thing I've been doing for about, I don't know, probably the last eight, eight years or so, I, I, I started within Orange County and I've been, I was a board member of the Orange County Police Canine Association for about seven years and through interfacing with a lot of departments that are in our county, in LA County and San Diego, I've been asked to reach out and just give little training talks to the people, you know, yeah. and just prepare them how they understand how animals learn, be it a dolphin or a dog. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes I see a shortfall in our industry that um, you'll go with your new dog, you'll go to a school to get trained or certified. Now, you normally have a timeline. Is it, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, yeah. 10 weeks, whatever it is. But it's that business's job to get the dog trained and you certified and out in a certain time frame. Sure. And sometimes they don't have the time or maybe it's not within their curriculum to spend some time to teach the handler, you know, how the basics of how animals learn yeah. and some very basic scientific principles on how animals learn. And why that's important is anybody can run a dog, especially when you first get paired up with your dog. And if it comes from Europe and maybe it's been, you know, KNPV or Shitson, hey, it's easy to give the command and the dog does that. Yeah. But where the training really begins is when you get out of school yeah. and the behavior starts to drift. Yeah. Now what do I do? Yeah. And some instances, unfortunately, people rely to um, some, some techniques that probably aren't the best for a, for a, a learning modality in the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I also stress is I get a lot of canine handlers go, hey, I'm a handler. I'm not a trainer. We got a department trainer. <laughs> Every time you interact with your dog, you're a trainer. You are training the dog. Yeah. You are teaching him good things and bad things. Yep. Yeah. And the better the handler is, is understanding how the dogs learn, the easier it's and more successful you're going to be with your yeah. dog. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so transferring over to the class, I, the title is protecting our canine profession. Let me interrupt you just for just for real quick. We'll talk about the class in a second, but while we're still uh, on the on you know your the mammal part of it, and maybe you know you and I did discuss a lot of this before the show started today. So if there's something that I asked that you can't you know respond to, I understand. Yeah. I'm sure our listeners will. Okay, but sure. I, I, like listening to it, and I think a lot of our listeners like the, one of the first things that's coming to mind is: is there a selection test, and how do you procure these animals? Very good question. Um, marine mammals are probably one of the top two federally regulated animals in captivity that are held, which means at the federal level and the state level, in some instances, it is dictated on certain things you can and can't do. And the cost of getting a federal permit, which you know, only an yeah. institution like a zoo, the, the Navy has a special dispensation to where we're allowed to get animals uh, for national defense. But marine mammals, 
under the Marine Mammal Protection Act are protected and are licensed. So Uh my point where I'm going is there is a selection test for maybe finding what might be good for the animal, but we don't have the luxury of, hey, this animal's not learning fast enough or whatever. Uh, I want to send this one back and I want to get a new one. We, we don't have that yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Um, the Navy Marine Mammal Program has been very successive years ago. We set up a, a breeding program, very similar to, to SeaWorld's. Mm-hmm. But, so we get the babies that are produced. Okay. Um, what it does do, going in it with that paradigm going, hey, this is the animal and I got to get it to do this, makes my trainers better trainers, right? Sure. So they may have a difficult animal they have to train, but it but working through it and discussing it and handling it based on behavioral principles makes the trainer so much better at the end of sure. it all. Sure. Did that answer the question? Yeah, it does. I, I, that, that was just going through my head when you were talking about it. I thought, I know there's not a dolphin bender that you go and buy your dogs from. Right, right. The sea lions from and the dolphins from. So, yeah, I just thought, you know, there's got to be obviously a, a very particular way to do it. And obviously, you know, when you talk about training, I know you talk about this in the class too, is I, I, I don't want to give too much of your class away, but obviously, you know, there's no compulsion used on these animals. So Correct. I think, the, I think that, that's where, where a, lot of, a lot of handlers can learn so much from just realizing the fantastic stuff you're able to do with these animals right. without ever really putting your hands on them. Right. And you know what? I, you know, when I got my first dog... I had to go through the same uh, kennel that our departments had since 1985. Uh-huh. I had to do it their way, even though as a person in animal training, I'm going, gee, I'd be doing this a little differently. I had to go through, get certified. Uh-huh. Then when I got out, I go, I'll just start applying what I know to my dog. Yeah. And um, that, you know, my dog was pretty successful. And, and I was asked to move from the city to go to special investigations and, there's three, we have about 4,000 people in our department and there's three of us that work highway interdiction yeah, and we work unit. a choke point on I-5. So we um, are on a task force and um, dogs are important, obviously, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for us. But um, I, uh, when I first learned how to train animals, um, animals in the short run initially will learn quicker through adversives. Okay. Uh That's a very short time. So you get immediate results. Okay. A lot of the dogs that come from Europe, right, are titled. They get more money. Yeah. So they work the dogs up. Hey, I want this dog to be perfect. I wanted a 440 dog or whatever. Yeah. You know, a lot of compulsion is put on it. Yeah. But the long term effects, and I won't say we don't use adversives in with marine mammals but an adversive can be something is it by definition scientific definition a mild form of an adversive can be fooey or no yeah or a timeout so yeah. we use those type of things yeah but the more when we talk about compulsion yeah. in the working dog world it yeah. usually means an e-collar or a yeah. pinch collar or or a prod or something yeah. and science has proven in the long run that over time compulsion has a lot of baggage. Sure. Okay. And because when you first go through your police dog school, you get immediate results, you're self rewarded, you're self reinforced. Yeah. Hey, it works it, it works it. 
But how many people have you seen start out with, say, using an e-collar in a real mild setting? And then, you know, within a few months, they're already at exactly. 10 and the dog's yep. fighting through it. Yep. yep. That is inflicted by the handler or the trainer that's working with the dog. And that has so much baggage. Um, the, the crux when I start talking about behavior is a philosophy. Sure. Absolutely. Ask yourself, what is your department's philosophy? Is it my job to make that dog do what I tell it to do? Or is it my job to get that dog to want to do it and please me? Be it yeah. bite, be it detect, you know, be it yeah. track, whatever. Okay. And that's all based in the fundamentals of how dogs work. Sure. Or learn. Sure. And um, if I, you know, our animals, say a dolphin, we work off 25, 30 foot uh, Boston whaler type boats with a cutout. The dolphins are trained to slide out of their open water pen. Animals live in San Diego Bay and, and floating pens um, on a Navy base. Uh-huh. We'll pull up the boat. We ask the animal to slide out, which means come all the way out of the water on a, on a pad on the boat uh-huh. and slide all the way in. Now, when you look at the natural history of a dolphin, a dolphin totally out of water is so foreign to the animal. That is like life-threatening yeah. to them. Yeah. So it takes us a long time to get the trust and training of the animal to slide out and come into the boat. Yeah. Then once he's in the boat, we can transport him miles and miles out into the ocean. When we get to where we're working, we slide him back in and go to work. Yeah. You know, go find the bad guy, go find yeah. the mine. And when you're done working, the reverse, come back. So yeah. getting back to the point of this is our animals have to want to do that. Yeah. I'm going to take a wild 800-pound, 700-pound dolphin into a boat, take him miles out to sea, put him in the water, and say, now go do your job. If and that animal back. didn't want to do that, we'd spend the rest of the day or days sure. chasing the animal <laughs> over the ocean or yeah. come back into the bay. Yeah. So um, – I learned that early on in my SeaWorld career, and it wasn't until I worked at SeaWorld at the time in the 80s when the killer whales started to breed, and, you know, that throws a lot of things off. That interferes with training. But originally, we were being told, hey, if the animal didn't do something correctly in the show or a training session, you make him repeat it. You make him repeat it until he gets it right. Um, we had some aggression problems back then because of the way we were being taught to train animals. And we got into problems with something called scheduled induced aggression, meaning we had a a tone that meant no, just like fooey, except it was an underwater tone. Yeah. So as soon as the animal did something wrong, say cut a corner on a perimeter swim, we'd hit, we'd hit the stimulus Delta or the no button. Yeah. And over time, Killer whales got really pissed. Dolphins got really <laughs> pissed, and they started taking it out um, on us. Yeah. Just like a dog, when he gets frustrated with a handler and he knows and predicts and a yeah. strong adversive is coming, yep. a, a dog's coming up leash, dog's shutting yep. down. Dog, you know, those are all artifacts of um, overuse or misuse of adversives. Now, uh-huh. I'm not going to say... Adversus have has its place in learning, uh-huh. but not to the extreme that some people in this industry use. Sure. 
right? Like a no or a timeout or, you know, things like that. So it's learning to balance your reinforcement history. And what I mean by reinforcement history is every time that dog's interacting with you, it's learning about you and about its environment, good things and bad things. When we have them under what's called stimulus control, and that's what we're supposed to have as canine handlers, my dog only bites when I tell him to. He only does, he only jumps in the car when I tell him to, right? Yeah. That's called stimulus control. And what happens sometimes when the dogs don't do it, we get frustrated and we, you know, try to correct it and it goes downhill from there. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen that many times. Yeah, and so, I've seen you know when you're talking about the, I what, the term you used was scheduled aggression, scheduled induced aggression. Yeah, and I mean I've seen that for sure. You know when I, I do a lot of problem solving with different people, and usually mm-hmm. the problem that they call me on is before a certification they need to teach their dog to release because they haven't done the yep the maintenance training. And I've never heard that term before, but I can I can give you descriptions of it because I've seen it yep. many times. And that's a that's a a validated scientific you know in the learning process so let me let me just tie up this one little end on reward or reinforcement histories i tell when i teach classes or you know help people troubleshoot things is if my job is to get my dog to want to do it they say well how how much reward versus adversive and when i say adversive that can be something as mild as a correction on a fur saver yeah, you know, or fooey or whatever. To maintain motivation and attention, I want to minimize that and focus on and enhance the rewarding end of it, right? That's how I get my yep. dog to want to do what I want him to do. And I'll say, depending on the dog, you know, I'd say 80, 20, 90, 10. But if you're somewhere around 60, 40, or 50, 50, as far as your adversive versus rewards, yeah. I would seriously take a step back and reevaluate because you're affecting your dog's motivation and attention and wanting to go do it. Do you have to send your dog down into a huge warehouse? You know, yeah. you want the dog to want to do that. You don't want him to run down range thinking, well, if I take the wrong step or something, am I going to get lit up or am I, you know, something like that? Am I going to get hit with the e-collar? I want my dog thinking about, Hey, finding the bad guy because then that's going to be fun just like, you know, in a detection yeah. task with, with dope. If and the dog's much, running down range worried about, if I don't do this right, man, something really bad is going to yeah. happen to me, he's not paying really good attention, to, in my opinion, of what he should be paying attention to. And, you know, I've seen before, and I want to see if it's scientifically correct, but I've, I've seen it and I've, I've trained with this in my mind that I see a carryover to that, you know, going back to the, you know, trying to fix a release overnight with too much compulsion then I Mm -hmm. see the dog's performance suffer in completely unrelated ways. Oh, totally true. Totally true in my opinion. (coughs) And that's why the better we can equip the handlers with the basics of understanding how animals learn, and I don't necessarily blame handlers. This is what they were taught by the school or the department's policies or whatever. That's why everybody should always go in and look at your procedures and policies and are they up to date? And, and what's exciting to me, Jeff, is I got my first dog 18 years ago. I went in and had to do it that way. And I, I, I worked along some great handlers. But I think they could have been so much better if they weren't just so much focusing on 
hey, the dog's getting one on, getting one over on you. You got to go show them who's boss. You got to yep. go do this or that. Yeah. And what's re- what's rewarding to me in our department and departments that we, you know, we train a lot of stuff, the bar has been raised and the handlers are better handlers and trainers just I, with the basic understanding of, hey, a negative reinforcer and a punisher are two separate things. Yeah. You I need agree. to know those definitions and how they work, right? Yep. One increases the frequency of the behavior happening again and one decreases. But I've seen people apply a negative reinforcer and a punisher at the same time. What's that do if you're a teacher to that animal? It confuses the heck out yeah. of them, right? And frustration. And when the dog gets confused, well, what also can happen, the dog becomes frustrated, yep. right? Yep. And he comes up the lead. Yep. Or he takes off or he shuts yeah. down. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's that's fascinating, you know, to, to see. Uh, um, I've seen the progression, and, and I agree with you in a positive way. I've been doing this for over 20 years now, and I really – um, I was fortunate in the program that I started in. We we did talk a lot about the science part of it and drives and character traits and the behavior part of it. But there was compulsion also, which there still is, you know, I think everywhere. But I believe that overall in our profession, it's going much oh. more to the science-based and less. You less know, I, I attended your guys' very first HITS conference. Uh-huh. And um, I didn't know what to expect. I, th- was, I think it was in... Uh, in Orlando, Midwest. Well, anyways, I was very impressed with some of the classes. I've I've been to other conferences, and what I was impressed with is you guys reached out and brought in a a wide variety of opinions. Yeah, and um, I it was the first time I'd been to a dog a police dog conference where there was actually a guy there talking about the basics of how operant conditioning works. Yeah. And you would have thought he was a heretic. The old timers <laughs> in the room going, what is this guy spewing or whatever? Um, I think it was Mike Colton. And I uh-huh. think what, you know, I went up to him afterwards and I go, Hey man, you're on track. This is, you're right. You know, keep doing it. We ended up going out to dinner and talking about animal behavior. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and it it has progressed so much. You guys have been at the forefront of it, of inviting in a diverse group. But as we found out, as anybody that's had to testify in court, especially like if the defense brings in an expert witness, they're going to bring in somebody that's an expert in behavior or yeah. statistics. Yeah. And we need to have our people prepared enough not to be an expert in psychology, but be able to explain it in basic terms, but based in the science. Exactly. Um, Exactly. An example I give is I ask people in the class before I delve into it, and I go, how many of you ever testified about your dog or whatever? I go, if you're on the stand and I'm the defense attorney and I come up to you and I say, how is your dog trained? What you're probably going to get is, oh, I went to XYZ Kennel and they showed me how to do it and I got certified. Yeah. No, officer, how was your dog trained? And, you know, you know, taking it to the extreme, by the end of the, the, the time I have with the people, I go, we explain what operant conditioning is and classical conditioning, just the very basics, because yeah. that's the paradigm on how animals learn. But I tell people, I go, if you take three things out of my class, just remember this, this, and this. And one of them is, you're going to be asked how your dog's trained. 
not who trained it or where it was yeah. trained. But if you can sit there and go, well, that's easy, sir. The majority of his training has been done using the application of operant conditioning. And then the follow-up question will be, well, gee, officer, what does that mean? Well, sir, that means that simple definition is behavior is modified by its consequences. And, yeah. <laughs> and I've given this in the class, and I've had, I don't know, half a dozen calls months later, people that have used it in court, and they go, hey, as soon as you say that, they're done. Hey, this officer probably knows more and they're yeah. going to redirect or they're going to stipulate yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's just very simple things like that. And using scientific terminology is being required now by juries and courts. Yeah. And if you don't know the understanding, the basics, and you get hit with something, you're supposed to be the expert of your dog and you could end up looking you know, yeah, less favorable than you, yeah. <laughs> you know, you the hope you would. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely something that I'd see, you know, I try to go to as many classes at a hits as I can, as my time allows me to Right. And over the last several years. It's, I think it's awesome. I'll go into, you know, one class that is on a patrol dog class and then I'll pop into a detection dog class. And there's been a few times where the guys have maybe the same video they pulled off of YouTube or the same yep. slide talking about operant conditioning or classical conditioning yep. or whatever methodology they're doing it. And I, I like the idea that people are hearing from very different background instructors teaching different topics and seeing that, that the science is important here. And yeah. I, think it, I think it's really being very well accepted at this point. Yeah. And, and that gets back to the, you know, the whole, the whole thing of my class is like, if you understand the basics of operant conditioning and classical conditioning, just, you know, just the, the, the bare layman's terms understanding, you're going to be so far ahead of not doing dumb mistakes, sure. right? And not taking right. it personal and thinking the dog's trying to mess you over and it yeah. really isn't. It's just confused or frustrated. Yep. Um, but, you know, we don't have to be PhDs or have a master's in psychology, but if we're the expert of our dogs, and we're talking about, you know, Fourth Amendment, right? That's yeah. where our dogs live in, right? Under the yeah. Fourth Amendment, search and seizure. Um, you better start, you know, raising the bar as far as the expectation of our handlers of understanding just the basic principles and, and use the terminology right. And sometimes I'll, I'll see something on TV, uh, you know, News at 11 or yeah. on YouTube or something. And just the, the, the simple thing of... Um, what a dog toy is, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to say something. Oh, it's this primary reinforcer. Yeah. Well, no, a dog toy is a conditioned or secondary reinforcer by scientific de definition. Yeah. As you and I know, a primary reinforcer is something that the dog has. It doesn't have to do any learning to know yeah. that it wants it. It has to yeah. have it. Food, water, air, sex. Yeah. There's no learning. <laughs> It has to occur for the dog to know it wants it. Therefore, it's it's a reward, right? Yeah. That's called a primary. A secondary is everything else. Yeah. A verbal good. Yeah. You know, is jute toy, the bite. Yeah. yeah. You know, Any those are all secondary that. condition. And it's not that big a deal, except if you're on that big case and you're in federal court yeah. and they bring in an animal behaviorist, they're going to just, you know, if you're misusing the terminology, yeah. that, you know, that could mess yeah. you up too, as you 
as you know. And I think also, you know, not just to worry about being in court. I think your point is extremely valid that having a, a working knowledge of all of this makes your life so much easier by being right. able to, even if you haven't been a dog handler for very long, you might have gone to one of these a vendor, you know, and gotten good, bad, or not bad, whatever type of training you get. And when you get back and you're trying to problem solve, if you understand, you know, these methodologies and you understand basic dog psychology, it's usually kind of easy to sit down and, you know, I get calls like you do yep. where people are trying to problem solve and, and I haven't even seen the dog, but it's like, you know, let's talk about this, this, and this. And you start applying the same, you know, questions and usually they, they come up with their own answer usually. Yep. They just haven't and been and that's the whole process. They, they're yeah. becoming more invested in understanding how their dog learns, which is going to make their dog better because yep. it's going to be clear communication, right? Yep. It's going to make the handler better, right? Because he goes, yep. okay, I'm a little more confident. I know, you know, not to take it personal or, you know, throttle yeah. the dog when the dog doesn't need to be throttled. And I'm not going to break the dog by trying right. to induce him into doing things. So Yeah. So and not use the excuse, oh, my dog's exceptionally hard. Yeah. Everything our dogs do have been trained to do it. Yeah. You know, there are different personalities. Yeah. I'll, I'll grant yeah. that, but. I agree. You know. <laughs> so your class, going back to that, is it's protecting our profession. And I think we've talked about quite a few of those things. But in a nutshell, it's it's kind of an overview of what we talked about and just some other. I think you touched on some, some bad things that have happened in our profession. Right. I, uh, the beginning of the class, I start off with. Um, a couple clear examples of why you need to understand the basics of how your dog learns so you don't abuse the dog. Sure. Okay. Or you don't get in trouble on the stand. So at the beginning, I will talk about, hopefully if you understand some of the basic things I'm going to talk about near the end of the class, it'll avoid issues with, defense attorneys in, um, in court on yeah. um, accusing you of cueing your dog. Sure. And I, I, I go over a couple examples of some well-known um, people that testify against law enforcement working dogs as a profession. Yeah. And, and they're very credible and they're yeah. very, some of them are, you know, have a whole bunch of alphabet after their name, PhDs and yeah. MDs and everything else. Yep. So, you know, right out of the gate, you know, the jury's got them, you know, incredible. Yeah. Anyway, so I talk about defense expert witnesses and probably some of the ways they can challenge you. And that's when I mentioned earlier about how your dog learns. Yep. Um, I've been asked that on the stand. The guy didn't know, the defense attorney didn't know what I, you know, Which do in my mean? other hours. <laughs> so <laughs> that was sort of fun. But, yeah. Um, then I also uh, bring up, I'm surprised on, on the classes I've taught, I'll always ask, Hey, has anybody heard of the clever Hans effect? And I might get one or two per people wow. that understand that. Yeah. And I go, you guys need to understand this because yeah. if he's, if your defense attorney started to go down that road, he's basically laying the groundwork to say that you're yeah. cueing your dog. Yeah, right. Yep. Right. Yeah. So show a little video of an example. And, and a lot of handlers don't realize that it can be subconscious, not overtly. We immediately react. No, I didn't cue my dog. I don't do that. Yeah. But it could be something so subtle and subconscious that the handler doesn't even yeah. recognize it. Yep. Yeah. So the first way of fixing it is making them aware of it and then setting some examples. Yep. 
Then I'll roll into something that law enforcement has sort of not been worrying about. The second part of why you need to know how your animals learn and so you can properly handle and train them are the animal extremists. Yep. And they aren't what the majority of the big ones are, in my opinion. Being in the marine mammal industry for 37 years, um, uh, we've <laughs> the marine mammal industry has been attacked every which way because yeah. they think it's you know these animals yeah. are superhuman or something yeah. and they should live free because it's better yeah. in the open yeah. ocean where they have to worry about predators so, and yeah. illness. But anyways, <laughs> and I illustrate how some major what the majority of the public thinks are well-doers, but they're, they're not animal welfare people. Hey, I think our industry is very concerned about animal welfare. Uh, our dogs, to a lot yeah. of handlers, are part of your family, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't, I don't want to be known as an animal abuser, but that gets transposed with animal activism. Yep. Organizations like PETA, Humane Society of the United States, um, you know, uh, I've been past president of a large marine mammal organization that testifies in Congress when it comes. Remember, I said marine mammals are yeah. federally legislated and licensed and everything. Every five years, the reauthorization of the Marine Mammal Protection comes up and some of us from the industry go testify to Congress. Uh -huh. We always have our detractors that say, sure. hey, you know, set Shamu free. Yeah. <laughs> But um, they're, and they're attacking our profession, yeah. and it's <clears throat> unless you've lived through it, and I have examples and some videos of um, handlers that were doing some stuff I shouldn't, sure. I wouldn't recommend. Yeah, and then some that were just, you know, we got cameras everywhere. You know, yeah. the law enforcement yeah. profession the last five eight years is really, you know, taking a turn in the public's eye. Yeah, but giving you a way to understand how the animals learn. So you're not like the incident that shut down, you know, canine units because the dog wouldn't yeah. give a jute toy up and a guy, guy yeah. strung it by its neck and was kicking it to spit out a jute yeah. toy, which is a very simple yeah. problem to solve. Yeah. If you know the basics yeah. of, of how yeah. to do that stuff. Yeah. And coming or, kind of full circle on that. I don't know. Yeah. I know the incident you're talking about. I don't know the background yeah. of it. But I do know of some things like that where I feel bad because the handlers are doing what they were taught to do. And they didn't. Know, they didn't know any better, yep. and I feel bad. I totally agree. They're That's what I mentioned earlier. It's like I don't blame the handlers if yeah. they weren't taught the right way. Yeah. And a lot of this is old school. Some of it is even self-taught. I'm sure you've come across sure. people in this profession that yeah. you know come from um, places that are self-taught, yeah. meaning, hey, this has worked and. Yeah. There's many ways to train an animal. There's not just one right way or one wrong way. Yeah. But if you base it all in science and you can defend it on, hey, this is I understand how animals learn, be it a, a dog or a human or a whale, yeah. and I just adhere to that. But yeah. anyways, you know, I, I had a, I had a, have an agency in Southern California that provided some pictures for PETA, and it was under the guise of uh, – Hey, you know, it's coming up on summer and we don't want police dogs cooked in their car yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So, um, I knew the guy when I saw the poster and I go, Hey man, stay away from PETA. Yeah. 
that very same year, uh, an agency's dog in Southern California, a handler worked uh, a double shift, Yep. came home. He was so tired, he forgot to get his dog out of the car, and the dog overheated and died. Yep. Within a day, PETA had activated its forces and was bombarding the city attorney over prosecution of the handler. Yeah. yeah. Um, and most handlers don't, you know, even think or worry about, it. hey, I'm law enforcement, you know, the, yeah. anyways. Long and short of it, um, you know, the guy was torn up, man. Oh, yeah. He lost, you know, he loved that dog. He got, he had to pay the department back. He couldn't be a handler anymore. Couldn't have dogs, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. An independent news station in my area just ran a little report. You wouldn't find it in the mainstream news. Mm -hmm. And they just did a records check or how many dogs on that same Saturday overheated in order in the county. Yeah. And four other dogs overheated, but there was no prosecution. No, no. The prosecution was bought against the handler because PETA was able to organize its forces. And they have, um, I give some examples in the class on, um, within a minute, Within a moment of several days, they can get a hundred thousand complaints sent to the police chief or the wow. sheriff. Wow! You know, and they're sitting there yeah. going, hey, "What's going on?" Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I talk about that. So the reason I want you to learn this stuff, it's going to help you defend yourself against attacks from the animal extremists who don't think we should be using yeah. working dogs. They come after the military all the time. Yeah for dogs and dolphins and sea lions, you know, don't use animals to fight human wars for any reason. They're entitled to their opinion, but you yeah. know, there's two sides to every story, but yeah. I, this industry like. needs to be aware of them. Yeah. You know, when you see that little commercial on Saturdays about the little dogs chained up and, yeah. and everything else, Hey, only $19 a month and we'll yeah. go out and save these dogs. Uh, that organization and I'm not saying yeah. that all animal welfare organizations are bad. What I am saying is you really have to understand which ones are which. What their mission is. What their mission is. That TV commercial, that organization that runs that, says they collect money to support strayed animals and um, animal shelters. Yeah. You know how much money, according to an uh, organization called Humane Watch, says they actually use towards the purpose of what they're collecting the money for. I'm sure it's a small, it's 1%. Yeah. yeah. I'm not surprised. So anyways, yeah, that's right. those two things coupled with, hopefully it gets the handler a little engaged to say, well, maybe I should listen to a couple of these terms. So if I ever end up in court yeah. or if all of a sudden I get attacked by animal activists or, you know, hopefully you won't get caught on video doing something you shouldn't be doing, which, yeah. you know, you know, you can go yeah. online and see it all day long. Oh, yeah. Just type in a blue abused police dogs. Yeah. I have some in the presentation and I'm going, once again, I'm not blaming the handler. This may be how he was taught, yeah. but if he wasn't taught this and he's doing it, then it's a supervision problem. Yeah. You know, and the bottom line is that, you know, any of these things, the way, especially with social media now and our profession, all that, yep. a small incident in a small rural area could it's have a, a big, big, big for all of us, you know. So, yeah, I certainly don't want to be that guy. I've, I've been fortunate enough to sit through your class, I think, at least twice, and I'm looking forward to doing it again. Um, because I always take a little more away from it. Um, so I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, 
you know, well, I try to update it a little bit yeah. each time, you know, with a, yeah. you know, to try to keep it as current as I can. And, yeah, um, and then, and hopefully get some interface, at least just get people thinking, Yeah, you know, um, you know, coming from the marine mammal industry, when I got the dog, the only reason my department offered me a handler position is because they knew my background in training. Yeah. They go, hey, maybe we can, you know, yeah. do yeah. something about it. I feel very fortunate. That's what got me the inroads to the working dog sure. profession. And I, I've sat back and, you know, some of the people I've known for years and, and you know, I think it started uh, at a conference with Andy. Uh-huh. You know, I said, this industry does not see what's coming from the act- animal extremist activism yeah. side. Yeah. You know, they don't want us using dogs. Yeah. They don't want people owning dogs as pets. Yeah. And when I'm in class, I say, hey, do you realize that in certain states, jurisdictions, and countries, pinch collars are outlawed, yeah. e-collars are outlawed. Yeah. And yeah. that's all from the activists yeah. and animal extremists pe- petitioning the government. Yep. And don't kid yourself, they're very well organized and had huge lobby presence in the, yeah. at the federal and state levels. Yep, yep. So I think that really kind of sums up your class, gives everybody a really good, good idea about, about who you are. And, and if, uh, if somebody's listening to this and they, they now hear some of your background and hear some of this class, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to come and hear mm-hmm. more of this because I, I like, I, I always want to pick your brain a lot, especially on the, the mammal side of it because you know and i don't know how much you could tell me or not but that's where i always really just just because it's different you know i know the dog side pretty well but the mammal side fascinates me and i know there's a good correlation so i'm really looking forward to seeing you in chicago in just a couple of weeks and i'm looking forward to the class again so I, yeah, well i appreciate your time and uh hope to see some people there and catch up to you and Sure you will. Um, HitsK9.net, if you want to check out Scott's bio, HitsK9.net. His bio's on there as well as the uh, description for the class is is on there. So go to HitsK9.net. still time to register. Uh, registrations, we're recording this right now at the uh, end of July, middle middle of the end of July. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure when we'll publish this, uh, but registrations are rolling in. There's still room. It's uh, going to be well over a thousand fellow handlers, law enforcement only handlers in our, our uh, um, seminar. So if you're listening to this and you like what you hear, uh, check it out. It's canine.net. And Scott, thanks again for uh, taking the time to jump on with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Hits Radio is brought to you by the professionals at Hits Training and Consulting. Don't miss out on the world's largest law enforcement canine training conference coming to the McCormick Center in Chicago, Illinois this August. HITS has the most diverse class schedule to fit your training needs. And with over 100 vendors, you'll find everything you need to gear up for your next shift. Register today and save at www.hitscanine.net.